The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So welcome to our final class on the Mahaparinibbana Sutta. And we'll begin um, just with a, an opportunity once again for any questions or comments that have come up from engaging with the material up to this point. Oh, good. So there's um, Helen has raised her hand already. Thank you. Go ahead. Are you able to unmute? <laughs> oh, okay. forgot about that. Uh, Kim, in your reading last time, at 6.8, it said the law entered the first jhana. I don't know anything about the jhana. Can you, there are four. And so can you talk a little bit about them? Oh, okay. Yeah, sometimes these terms, um, especially in this last, uh, you know, the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, there are a lot of terms that are thrown in that are described in other places in the suttas, but they're sort of not described in this particular one. So just in case people aren't familiar with that term, um, jhana, this is a type of uh, concentration. It's a type of gathered mind state that's a a sort of particular that one can um, uh, get into through practices such as mindfulness of breathing, such as uh, metta. It's a very particular kind of um, focused attention. And so the, and there's a number of levels. So we say defined that. And so these are just particular states of concentration that the Buddha was moving his mind through. Does that help? Yeah, yeah, that's good. Okay, and um, Henry. Hi, thank you for this opportunity. Um, uh, um, so in the suit, in the in the suttas, and in this one, there's obviously a lot of reference to um, monastic life, um, and you guys have been practicing for a while, so I assume that you've been able to grapple with this idea of monastic life or um, uh, you've been able to grapple with it. So I don't know. Um, um, how do you guys relate to it? And um, I ask because I have, I've had this belief that for a while that I need to go be a monk. Yeah, I think maybe several of us will have have comments to say on this because it's um, a very rich and important topic for us as lay people who are studying the suttas and doing the practices. It becomes obvious as one keeps reading them that the Buddha is often talking to the monks. He keeps saying bhikkhus, bhikkhus. And so you can there can start to be an idea, oh, if I'm really going to do this, I guess being a monastic is the way, I guess that was how, how you have to do it. Um, so that may be sort of a natural way to think, but um, it's not necessarily the case. Uh, I believe in something that David was quoting earlier from chapter two, there were examples given of lay people who had attained various levels of awakening and the Buddha you know, had no problem seeing that their, their destinations were such, you know, based on having awakened minds. Um, so it's uh, in the end a very personal decision about whether that 
the monastic vehicle or the lay vehicle will be the most supportive for one's path. And sometimes one does both in one's lifetime in some order or the other. Um, so this is sort of a longer conversation, but maybe what I can say in a short term is that both lay people and monastics can have all kinds of um, uh, development on the path. It's not a limitation to be a lay person necessarily. Um, yeah. Do others have comments on that? Can I add uh, just a little something here? I'll just add something about the socio-historical context. At this time, and the Buddha, you know, thousands of years ago, right? We're going to have to put ourselves there. There's no such thing as going to a retreat center and sitting among retreats. There was, you only got to hear Dharma talks if there were a Dharma teacher that was coming through town. Maybe Dharma teachers came through once when you were young and you heard something and were inspired, but you didn't have Dharma books. You didn't have, uh, you know, there's just the resources were so different. So what's available to us as lay persons today it just simply wasn't available to laypersons then. So that, that's maybe one. And then I'll just uh, reiterate what Kim said. These teachings are preserved by the monastics. So, of course, the monastics are highlighted because they're the ones who are preserving the teachings. So they don't, they don't actually know what was going on with the lay people necessarily because they weren't there. So I'll just add those things. It's a beautiful question, and I encourage um, your deep reflection, because only internally we know uh, what, what is the right path for us, although talking with others can help too. So thank you for bringing that up. It's, it's an important area to look at. Thank you. Are there any other comments at this point? Worry? Hi, thank you. Um, I, I, ever since I read this part, I've been struggling with it. It's the um, the beginning of the experts, excerpts that you gave for four, where the Buddha says, if you hear someone teaching the Dharma, then to know if it's actually Dharma, you need to compare it with all the rest of the <laughs> suttas. And I know that this is a very complicated matter in academia. How do you how do you know the intention of like the authors and how do we even know the intention of the founding fathers with the constitution? It's a very big problem. But I just wonder from like the teachers here and personal practice, how do you how do you actually do that if you at all do that? How do you take something that somebody teaches and today on YouTube I can find almost anything and say this is real dharma, this isn't is I should take and incorporate in my practice, this I can ignore. It's very complicated for me to, to know. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot that can be said on this also, but it's such an important topic. Um, maybe I'll just say a couple of things and then um, I'm sure my co-teachers could th throw in a couple more. Um, so first of all, the Buddha was well aware of this issue. I mean, he wasn't only saying that because he was trying to, you know, create a religion and preserve it. Um, but it, actually the spiritual milieu of the time in ancient India, it did, 
it happened to be a time of a lot of different ideas. There were many teachers. They had these debates and um, you know philosophical talks with each other. And so there was this kind of rich, um, almost like, yeah, rich environment. And so people also had similar concerns as yours. It's like, well, who do I believe? All these different people talking and how do I know what's right? And, you know, people are concerned about their spiritual life and doing it right and so forth. So there are other teachings that address this more fully. In fact, I think we did a class, didn't we, on the Kalama Sutta. So there are other teachings that um, talk about this issue. And what they tend to point toward in a very quick summary is that they're at least as I see it, there's one way is to experientially find out for yourself and you know, learn through one's direct experience um, what is true. And we're given practices that help us do that, as well as checking with wise people. These Most of the teachings also say, confirm with a wise person whether or not what you're seeing or understanding is um, valid in a sense. And that, um, yeah, that's also important. So we have to find out for ourselves in the end, and, but there are tools to use along the way, including your own logic, including checking with others, including your experience. So other comments from the other teachers? Ying. Yeah, yeah. I, I'll just uh, add a little. And the, when we put this courses together, the reason we uh, made it study and practice um, course series is to some in some uh, maybe small ways to address some of these uh, concerns that you brought up. And so our study is not separate from our own practice to really become more and more clear and have more clarity, understanding. And so engaging our practice as we learn and ask questions, ask wise people and, and study the text and study different sources. And so that's kind of um, the way we oriented uh, this series uh, with that intention. And so I just kind of add that to the mix as well. Thank you. Oh, gosh, this has prompted a lot of questions, and um, it would be, yeah, I'm hoping that we can um, move forward. I wonder if there would be a way to, um, we will have a chance later for other comments and questions, so why don't we go forward with what David is saying uh, he's going to be teaching next, and maybe um, some of what he says will help clarify, and if it doesn't, then um, please uh, Keep your questions. Okay, go ahead, David. Thank you. And yeah, we we always have we always want to engage more in more questions. And hey, if the my teaching is successful, it'll raise more questions than answer. You know, in any kind of authoritative way for once and for all the questions that come up. That's that's part of this. Yeah, I wanted to. Um, sort of round out a little bit our discussion of the Buddha's passing with paying a little attention to what happens after this big, this momentous event. And what happens directly after it in terms of the homage or homage that is paid to the Buddha. And then some of the devotional aspects that develop uh, in the time surrounding the Buddha's death. And 
first, let's just look, let's go into the text and then, and then back up for some commentary. And I thought I would share screen just to bring these texts before people's eyes. Four, four verses are recited or uttered. Um, one gets the impression from the word uttered that these are spontaneous uh, reactions to the Buddha's passing. And it's a very interesting construction. I want to bring some attention to the way it's put together, these four verses. Um, and I would note that two are provided by devas. This first one, Brahma Sahampati, is the deva who first in, was present at the Buddha's uh, awakening and encouraged him to teach. So we're the direct beneficiaries of this person's involvement in the Buddha's, the Buddha's life. Um, and he utters this verse, all beings in the world, all bodies must break up. Even this peerless teacher, this peerless human in the world, the mighty Lord, this perfect Buddha has passed away. And Saka, admitting somebody to the, from the waiting room, and Saka, ruler of the devas, utter this verse, this verse, impermanent are all conditioned things, prose to rise, prone to rise and fall. Having risen, they're destroyed and their stilling or their passing is truest bliss. You may be familiar with the Pali, sometimes recited at memorial services or funerals. Anicca vata sankaro padavaya damino, pajituva nir jihante te sambupasamosuko. Apologies for my, for my American accent. And then there's two verses provided by a disciples, and in this case, clansmen, both Ananda and Aniruddha, are related to the Buddha. They're, they're, they're Sakyans, they're from the same clan. And they focus not on this teaching of impermanence or unreliability in Nietzsche, but on the death itself and its momentousness. No breathing in and out, just with a steadfast heart, the sage who's free from desire has passed away into peace. With a mind unshaken, he endured all pains. By Nibbana, the illumined mind is freed, or the illumined mind is freed. And then Ananda finishes with just noting and, and bookmarking what we learn above at the opening of the passage that upon the Buddha's death, terrible was the quaking, men's hair stood on end when the all accomplished Buddha passed away. So part of the magic that's going on here, um, when verse happens in the Pali Canon, it can have a lot of functions, but here we, we see it doing one of the things it does really well, which is distilling important teachings and intensifying them for our consideration. These four passages in their two parts echo the Buddha's final words to his followers. All conditioned things are of a nature to decay. To decay. So, and as I glossed it this morning, so continue this practice unstintingly, vigilantly, right? <clears throat> I think they draw our attention to these final words of the Buddha and sort of echo them and reinforce them or maybe intensify them because of the importance of this particular insight into impermanence in the early teachings and in our tradition. It's from this reminder that this, this among maybe other insights, but perhaps this particular insight into anicca, into unreliability, into impermanence, is of central importance in the teachings uh, as they come down to it. It's from this insight that the Insight Meditation Center and the Insight Community take their take their names. One thing that's pointed to here is that we like to make nouns of things. We can talk about an insight into something. 
But these passages remind us too that this way of seeing things, that is seeing that the things we look to to provide ultimate or lasting contentment in life, that they can't by their very nature provide that because they're compounded or conditioned. They are by nature going to decay, going to pass away. Um, and um, for that reason, can't provide that contentment. And there's something about the reminder of the Buddha's death, of the finality, something that maybe provides a sense of samvega, or um, um, wow, samvega, provides a sense of urgency of practice that is, I think, reinforced by the reminder that among all the things that are impermanent, the life of this teacher is included. As we heard uh, Kim and, and Ying on Thursday variously emphasize. So along with this sort of um, very careful, <clears throat> carefully, beautifully constructed way of, of uh, homage that follows the Buddha's death, there are reminders sprinkled through these last two sections, sections five and six in uh, chapters five and six in the Walsh translation of um, where we can see the emotion, the emergence of sort of conscious, deliberate um, devotional aspects of practice. And perhaps they're just emerging more likely. These are standard ways of, um, of, uh, devotion and yet they're legitimized or brought forward uh, to us as, as a, I think a, a suggestion that these can be parts of our practice in the, when, uh, in the absence of the teacher. So we see, for example, um, the, um, the pilgrimage practice that we, it's, this is actually not in our uh, selection at 5.8. The idea that pilgrims in this um, in these traditions uh, might find it useful, might find that it increases their sense of urgency, uh, might find that it increases the depth of their practice by making pilgrimage to four important sites, the site of the Buddha's birth, his awakening, the deer park in which he gave his first Dharma talk, as it were, um, and this, the place of his death. At 5.11 or 5.11, there's the, um, the uh, legitimation of the stupa practice, that is creating, um, creating devotional um, locations and geographies that are part of, um, the, a part of a devotional practice. And in later sections, 6.23 to 6.27, the, the latter of which the 6.27 we've we have included in our excerpt, there's the, um, a legitimation of the veneration of relics. And it seems to me that these, um, these are a reminder, perhaps to us, and this is just a personal reflection in a way, that perhaps in, in particularly in our community, that these can remind us that devotion really is an important part of the practice in these early communities, particularly in the absence of the great teacher. That when the teacher dies, how we remind ourselves of the importance of adopting a way of seeing impermanence that frees or has the potential to free, that it can be supported by devotional practice because they help remind us of these, of these things. Um, so 
that may just be something to keep in mind that devotional practice, whether in any direction, um, kind of in reference to any of the three jewels of practice, the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, um, can all have, um, can all provide richness to the practice and may, may really help us um, do what the Buddha enjoins us to do. And these verses in homage reinforce the message to continue this practice with vigilance. So I, I kind of hurried through things I wanted to talk about because I wanted to share something else that came up into my febrid mind this morning, which is just um, a, a reminder from um, Buddhist art of the significance of the Buddhist passing. I find it very poignant that for about three centuries in the period of Buddhist art, some of you may know this, this uh, background, in the period of Buddhist art known as the aniconic or pre-iconic period lasting from the Buddha's death, whenever we take that to happen through the Ashokan period and into the first century of the common era, Buddhist art didn't, for the most part, to the extent we know, present um, um, images of the Buddha. Instead, it presents images of the Buddha's absence. I find this very poignant, and I feel like this is part of what this section, this final section of the sutta is all about, is helping us understand that, that as we take ourselves as islands of practice, as we work together in community and see that as all of the spiritual path, as we take the teachings to be the teacher, that these things were reflected in the early attempts of the community of practice that followed the Buddha to make sense of his passing and to keep those teachings alive. Here, the absence of the Buddha is reflected in footprints, which is a common motif. And in these footprints are wheels that um, suggest the, the Dhamma, the, teaching of the, the teachings of the Buddha. In other images, very common actually, uh, we see an empty throne frequently under a Bodhi tree. So we see the place of awakening, we see attendance, we see the teacher's, the teacher's seat, as it were, and yet no teacher. And finally, in one that I just feel like it gets my heart a little bit this morning, you can see here the absence of the teacher, the Bodhi tree, and um, followers, disciples, perhaps in, in response to the earlier question today, both monastic and lay disciples, making sense of uh, what it means to take ourselves as islands, to practice together in community, to take the teachings as our teacher, um, and continue to share and keep alive um, these practices as um, those verses in homage of the Buddha reminded us. So thank you. <laughs>